And then uh, if you have Bibles with you, um, you can open them up to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 3. And uh, while you're opening up there, while we're getting settled up here, uh, just ask you a question. How many of you have protocols for something? You're like, what do you mean? Uh, how many of you have routines? Routines that you practice. Yeah, we have routines in the room. So like when I wake up, I, maybe I brush my teeth, I shower, put some deodorant on, make a plan for my day. Uh, they, I have to read scripture. I have to pray. Like maybe you have a series of things that you have to execute in your day to like feel like, okay, I'm good to go. Uh, and maybe some of you just have to like wake up five minutes before work and like get in the car and go, and they, that's your thing. Okay, whatever. But, but everybody has a series of protocols that they go through for that. You know, when I get to work, I... Uh, maybe you punch the clock. Maybe you check in with your coworkers. Maybe you have to check your schedule for the day. Maybe you have to look at your to-do list. Uh, when I get home, I have to, like, I get home every day. I check in with my spouse. I check in with Andrea. I say, hey, how was your day today? How'd things go? Um, I start, uh, well, I don't start dinner. Andrea has already started dinner at that point, right? We sit down and eat. Uh, maybe, maybe you change into comfy clothes. I know after I get done, like, on Sunday, the first, like, I go, I change into comfy clothes. I go home, take a nap, like, that sort of thing. That's a, that's a pretty typical protocol. Okay, so uh, now we have some protocols that happen in emergencies. Like, when something happens, we have to do something to respond. So, if I spontaneously combust here on stage, I must stop, drop, and? Very good. Okay. Uh, how, about, how about this? If the cops arrest me, they have a protocol. They have a, a phrase that they have to say. They say, you have the right to remain. Very good. That's their protocol. Every time they arrest somebody, they read that. Uh, if I see someone drowning, I reach, throw, row, and? Nobody had it. Don't go. You reach, throw, row, and don't go. Because if you go, if you go, then the drowning person will grab you and pull you under with them. That's kind of how that works. You learn that in uh, lifeguard class. I learned it in swimming lessons like in sixth grade, and it's just stuck with me. Uh, and then emergency responders, like they, they're, they're the clearest at this. I, I sat down in a dispatch office one time, and the notebook that the dispatchers have, that they have to go through of all the protocols in certain situations, that they, they have to find the right page to turn to, to know exactly how to respond to every situation. And I personally, as a pastor, I have a, my own series of protocols that I have, uh, I have developed over the years. So when I uh, meet with somebody else for counseling, I have, I have some protocols that I always go through. I always pray with that person that I meet with for counseling. I always seek to listen to them, to understand where they're coming from. I always, I, I always try to provide clarity on next steps after that meeting. I don't just want to, to have us have an exchange of words, but I want to have some clear next steps. And then, and then after that, uh, I, I, every time I have counseling, I just document the conversation so that it's put away and, it, and it's taken care of. You know, whenever, if somebody ever hits on me, a man or a woman, I tell you this has not happened, I just got to be real honest with you, but if it ever happens, I have a series of protocols that I am like ready to go with. I'm immediately going to disengage when that ever happens. I'm going to leave the situation or I'm going to hang up the phone, whatever it might be. I'm going to go and tell my wife, somebody say amen to that. Yes. Okay, good, good. I'm going to, I'm going to document the event. I'm going to tell our elders what happened. 
I'm going to strive to never have a private conversation with that person again, right? So there are this, this, this series of protocols that I have to uh, engage. You know, when somebody brings to light some sin for me, and this is important because when this happens, my impulse is going to be defensiveness, but, but I seek to listen as much as I can. I ask questions, right, to, to clarify. I seek to empathize. And then I, I try as much as I can to thank them. And then I always make sure I journal and pray afterwards. I process, okay, what is the Lord showing me through this? And then, and then I have to respond to the person. And if that's necessary, I have to respond with repentance, right? So, like, there, there are these protocols that I have to engage in each of these situations. And here's the point. The point is we all arm ourselves with contingency plans. When X happens, I will do Y. We're prepared for these sorts of things. Our protocols actually protect us because in certain situations, the pressure can be so intense that it can be really hard to be clear-headed. It can be very hard to know what to do in the situation. And so what you do is you arm yourself with a series of predetermined responses to how the situations that might come up. And as Christians, there, there are circumstances that we're going to encounter that are going to make it hard for us to be clear-headed. Now, Peter today, he, he's going to address three categories of circumstances that are really easy targets for Christians. And when these things come our way, what we need to do is we actually need to stop and enact our predetermined responses. So here are the three categories, suffering, substances, and sexuality. These three categories... More than, more than almost any other category, like I can point to you, I could guarantee you that, that every Christian in this room has some relationship, every person in this room has some relationship with, with one, at least one of these three things, whether it be something in your family, whether it be something that you face personally. These three things, though, tell us, okay, we need to be careful and make sure to stop and enact our predetermined responses when we encounter these things. So Peter, he's, he's writing to Christians, and these Christians, they have been dispersed throughout Turkey. They have been scattered, and they are facing harm for their faith. They're socially ostracized. They're being excluded. They have diminishing influence with the people around them. Some of them have been kicked out of their homes. And nearly, nearly every Christian I talk to, like, I talk about these things coming up. We have a hard relationship with, with suffering and substances and sexuality. In fact, uh, it, it's a rarity that you can come across a Christian who hasn't interacted with one of these things in some way. And because, because to live as a Christian is to commit yourself to a set of protocols that counteract brokenness, we actually have to talk about the, the things that we put in place to counteract the brokenness that can come as a result of these things or in interaction with these things. So, so go with me for a second. When Jesus saves you, you die to self and you come alive to Christ. So the, the broken person that you once were, you know, Jesus was a whole person. When the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside you, you trust in Jesus, he's now interested in taking this broken person and taking them on paths to make them whole. And so this, we call this process sanctification, the process by which a broken person becomes whole. And this is an acknowledgement that actually what we have to do is we have to work hard to set aside our old broken ways of operating in the world, our old set of protocols. We have to work hard to set that aside so that we can adopt a new way of operating or a new set of protocols. So here's the reality, and this, this is the reality 
that is foundational for 1 Peter. I want to talk about this. The world is learning about Jesus by observing our protocols. The world is learning about Jesus by observing our protocols. Is the faith that we have really effective? Could it actually be true? Does Jesus really offer hope? Are Jesus followers even really any different than the rest of the world? Why should I care about what Jesus wants? Our protocols that we enact in all of these circumstances are going to answer those questions for people. And so Peter recognizes there's a threat in these things that as Christians, as they learn what it means to to live as Christians in a world that doesn't want them around, that these things are going to present threats to them. And so this is what he does. He calls out the threats. And as he calls out the threats, he wants to help these Christians arm themselves with a set of protocols. Now, last week we talked about suffering a little bit. Um, and, and rather than rehash that, I just, I'll just give you the shortened version. The, wa- the world is watching as you suffer, and in particular, as you respond to, to the loss of influence, to the social ostracism that you might face as a Christian. And the protocol that you have to put in place is this, I have to try to look as much like Jesus in the middle of suffering as I can. So today, uh, today we're going to see Peter. He's going to hone in on these categories for us and help us to adopt some protocols. So we have to talk about the old set of protocols, the Gentile protocol, do what feels good. Verse 3 says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So right now what he's doing, he's referring to their former way of living. Gentiles, literally that word, uh, we we get it all mixed up and throw all these things in it. Literally the word means nations. It means the nations. So the people that you have been scattered amongst, you Christians, there's a bunch of non-Christians around you, and there's a way that they operate. But for for people who are following Jesus, what he's saying is you've had enough time with these things. Your time with these things has actually filled itself up. And then he gives a list of the things that are past for Christians. It says living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I mean, Peter just attacks this stuff. He has no problem tackling the uncomfortable realities that these Christians are dealing with. And these categories, I'd just like to broadly sum them up. They can be summed up in two things. They can be summed up in intoxication and sexual immorality. Intoxication is an invitation to numb the pain of life and help us ignore or miss what God is doing. Sexual immorality is an invitation to indulge our never-satisfied flesh at the cost of our own soul. And both of these are abuses that described what the culture of the day celebrated. They reveled in these things. This was the common way of life. And so you might even look at our culture today and say, oh, these things are normal today. But I tell you, in Roman society, it was far more intense and on the surface of the culture than anything we're witnessing today. So uh, he, he categorizes all of these things. He says at the end, he calls it lawless idolatry. And I, and I want to take a look at that category because if you're living in the Roman world at this time, there's this system of temple worship that exists. And uh, that system of temp- temple worship, it promoted intoxication through substance abuse. 
through drugs, through alcohol, whatever it might be. But, but the more, they said the more you can create or get into this intoxicating experience, the closer you are to the gods. They promoted sexual immorality in, in, in connection to temple worship. So it was not uncommon to see cult prostitution and pedophilia and, and orgies. All of these things were the way that they worshipped their gods in that day. Now, these things might be present in our society today, but, but there, I mean, many of these things that I just talked about, they're illegal, right? They're not on the surface of our society, but there they were. So there's some issues that we need clarity on before we move forward into this. Alcohol. Alcohol is not a good thing or a bad thing, but it is a morally neutral thing. In fact, Jesus, he made wine for a wedding. Wine is a picture of joy in the Old Testament. Paul tells Timothy, hey, you should take some wine for your stomach. The substance is not the problem, but alcohol becomes a problem when we use it to numb the pain of life that we come across, when we use it to create some alternative state of mind, when we use it to escape our means of existence and enter into some other existence where we can afford to ignore the things that are coming against us, the things that we feel, the things that we don't like. Using it to achieve some alternative state other than just being us, right? So that's when alcohol becomes the problem. We call this drunkenness. Sexuality. Sexuality is not a neutral thing, and it's not a bad thing, but it's actually a good thing. Like, God created sex. Sex is good. He intended it to be in a certain context. It's a celebration of the marriage covenant. Like, this is what he intended it for. But our broken world has found all sorts of ways to distort this good thing that God has made. And God, actually, we see him get incredibly emotional about this. Like when, when, when people, when God's people take something that is a good thing and distort it, he doesn't just like move into the realm of calling it sin or that is a wrong thing to do. He actually calls it, like he uses words like abomination when it comes to the abuse of these things. So I want you to hear Peter's perspective and and his framework on this as he enters into this discussion on protocols because it's important. He's saying, hey, the Gentiles, they're going to do what feels right. But Christians, we have to seek God's heart on these things. Christians do what God loves. That's the overarching protocol. Gentiles do what feels right. Christians do what God loves. So Peter has some protocols, and he intends them to respond with these protocols. So uh, first category of protocols, protocols for when I'm enticed by the world. Verse 4 says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and, and they malign you. So Peter, when he talks about, talks about this flood of debauchery, Peter loves the story of Noah. He loves to go back to this story. He keeps coming back to it. In fact, when he's talking about this, this flood of debauchery, he's actually referencing them back to the flood. Because at that time, Genesis 6, 5, this is what it says. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Like when, when Peter's talking about the flood, the flood was God's response to this only evil continually state of mind. And so Peter's, Peter's pulling their attention back to that point. And then he talks about this maligning that happens when we resist. So remember, uh, remember what we said earlier, the world is learning about Jesus by observing our protocols. So when you say no to certain things, 
you may uh, have experienced when you uh, interact with your friends and neighbors uh, a certain amount of frustration. Maybe frustration isn't the right word. A certain amount of maybe annoyance with the way that you respond when you're asked to go to a drinking party or asked to go out to the strip club. I don't know what the category might be, but when you're asked to do certain things and you say no, uh, it creates a response that you didn't want to create, but it happens anyway because the perception is you're judging me right? These people get it in their heads that, oh, when you say no to this thing that I invite you to do, you must think it's wrong, and therefore you are judging me. And the reality is we're, we're not necessarily judging them by saying no, but we are drawing lines. We are enacting our protocols. And this apparently was a normal experience for the Christians in that time, because typically Christians did not participate in the Roman forms of entertainment that existed in the day. You know, Christians wouldn't even go to the theater in that day, because the theater had all sorts of, it was terribly risque, it enacted sexual immorality like right there on the stage, and the Christians said, we can't be a part of that. Uh, in fact, they were looked at as killjoys, right? When the, the chariots and the gladiator races, all of these things like happening in the Colosseum, the Christians refused to go and be a part of it because they knew it was so immoral. Like people were being killed for the entertainment of the audience, and they knew they couldn't take part in this. And so Christians drew hard lines, but then what happened is that society looked at them and they said, you're killjoys. You don't, you don't actually want to enjoy the things that we want to enjoy, and so we're going to consider you to be outcasts. So what are the perp- perfectly normal things that Christians draw boundaries around today? Maybe it's not engaging in locker room talk. Maybe it's not engaging in hookup culture. Maybe it's not watching pornography. Maybe it's not going to drinking parties. Maybe it's being intentional about the kinds of entertainment we consume. As you do, as you strive to be intentional about these things, as you strive to enact protocols, what's going to happen is that people are going to recognize that these boundaries are creating a problem between you and them. And it may not be a problem for you, but it is a problem for them. And you'll be talked about poorly. You'll be made fun of. So then, so then when he in- introduces that idea, he says in verse 5, this is what he says. He offers them an encouragement. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So you know what? At the end of the day, someone has to answer for the things that we've done, how we've broken the good things that God has given us, and it will either be us or it will be Jesus, right? And so we take comfort as Jesus followers, people who are following Jesus, that Jesus has answered for the things that we have done. We strive to follow him more, but those who malign us, those we, we have, take some level of comfort in the fact that Hey, as they bring this against you, everybody stands before the same judge someday. And then six, he, he, he actually, in verse six, he brings out the hope in this, and this is what he says. He says, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So those who are dead, this is, it's a reference to Christians who had passed away. And it's important to recognize Peter is addressing a common argument that people of the day had against Christians because they would look at the Christians and they would say, hey, if Christians die just like everyone else, then why would I live like they do? They deny all of these pleasures that I just prefer to live in. So why in the world, if Christians die like everybody else, why in the world would I live like they do? And friends, this is important that, that what, the way that we live actually stands out in culture, that the ways that we live stand out in culture because it will cause people to ask questions like this one. 
And when we are asked questions like this one, it presents an opportunity to say something like, death does not have the final say for us. We do what God loves because Jesus gave everything for us. You know, you've got good news for the person who is trying to numb themselves the person who's trying to fill their never-satisfied cravings. You've got hope to offer that there is actually power to overcome these things. That there's power to overcome the repeated actions and the broken relationships that these things have caused. And that power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we live the way that we are presented, and there's this tremendous opportunity to share our hope in Jesus. So I did, this, I did this halfway through college. I made a big change in my life halfway through college. I started actually living like God wanted me to live and not living in the flood of debauchery and all of this stuff. And, and so in making this change, what happened is I did get maligned. People are like, oh, you don't want to hang out with us anymore? Oh, you, uh, oh you're judging us now? Like that sort of language came up. And, and, uh, but it presented me with an opportunity as well. Because as I saw my life change, it created uh, conversations that had to come up. And I actually ended up, I wrote cards to all of my friends in college and I, and, who knew that I was drawing these boundaries, who had a perspective of me that I was this Christian who didn't want to do the things that they didn't want to do. And, but I just, I said, hey, I love you. And can I tell you about Jesus? Can I tell you about the reason I made this change that I made? And, uh, and that was an opportunity for me to share hope with my friends. And my, my encouragement, my hope is that as we live these ways in our lives, that it would create natural conversations where we would be able to share with people the hope of a Savior who actually, like, can change us. Okay, so then he moves on to the actual protocols that we have to implement. Verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of of your prayers. So when we're met with opportunities for intoxication and sexual immorality, we are called to be self-controlled and sober-minded. So protocol number one, the first thing that we need to do when we encounter these situations, we walk away. We walk away. When we're invited to go to that place we're not supposed to go, we walk away. You know, so I know it can be hard to think like, we are under the control of our bodies. So our bodies tell us what we need to do. But you know what? It's actually the opposite. Like, especially as Christians, our body does not tell our mind what to do. Our minds tell our body what to do. So, uh, so Gentiles, you know what they do? They let their body control their mind. They do what feels right. They do what feels good. But Christians, with the Spirit of God, who are informed by the Word of God, they control their bodies with their minds. So let's talk about self-control for a, for a second. Maybe you have somebody who, who can't over, uh, overcome their addiction to pornography. Like, let's just sit with this person for a second. And this person is struggling, and they're saying, I can't do it, and I'm under the control of my body. Uh, but, but let's actually test that theory for a second, because a mind that is resolved is absolutely stronger than a mind that is not resolved. So, so you tell that person, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hold a gun to every person in your family's head. And then if you, the moment that you enact that, I'm going to pull the trigger. You think that person, that person is going to have self-control because their mind is resolved to not do it. Because the cost is too high. So the question that we all have to answer is how high is the cost for us? Do we actually see how high the cost is? And then when we do, the moment that we see the height of the cost, we walk away. 
protocol two. We think clearly. This is the sober-mindedness. So, so when my passions are high, are my thoughts clear? The answer is no, they're not. And so when pressure is turned up, we're inclined to numb ourselves to the hard things. We're inclined to give ourselves over to things that help us ignore the realities that are happening to us. And as Christians, we cannot afford to numb ourselves to these things, but we actually have to think clearly, okay, now I've gone through this process. Now I'm meeting this thing. What is the next protocol that I have to enact? What is the next thing that I have to do? We have to think clearly about the situations that we walk into. And protocol number three, remember the reward. He says, for the sake of your prayers. You don't do these things. Like, the reason you do these things is, is because they're, like, they're intricately connected to how God hears your prayers. This is, in fact, the third time that Peter has said this for what it's worth. He keeps reminding them, hey, the way that you live has an impact on the ways that that God relates to you. So you might be saved and you might be a Christian, but but if you're not living righteously, if you're not pursuing the things that God wants you to do, like apparently God hears the prayers of the righteous. Like God especially hears the prayers of those who are seeking to follow him in these protocols and enact these things. And so he's very concerned about their prayer life. So if we go back 1 Peter 3, 7, this is what he says. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. He's like, hey, husbands, if you treat your wives like crap, God's not going to listen to your prayers. Like, your prayers are going to be hindered. You're going to have a harder time relating to God. 1 Peter 3, 12, he says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer." but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so the question that we have to answer is, hey, Christian, do you want God's face to be turned towards you? Do you actually want an effective prayer life? Do you want uh, God's love? Do you want these, um, do you want to instill these protocols? If that's the case, then what we're called to do is we're called to do what God loves. And God will work because of your prayers. That's the encouragement. So remember the reward. Okay, so that's the first set of protocols he addresses. Let's move on to the second set. Protocols for when I'm hurting in the church. Verse 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So besides you, who gets hurt most when things are hard in your life? It's your family, right? When, you, when you're at home, when you've had a bad day at work and you come home, if you're married, you, your spouse makes maybe one small mistake or things aren't exactly like you like them, you know what? You, you're going to take that hard day. Your, your tendency, your flesh, is to take that hard day out on your spouse in that moment, right? When, when mom has a hard day with the kids and dad comes home, like dad might get the brunt of that. When the husband loses his job, you know, who deal like with the hurt that he can cause? It's like it's mom and the kids, like this, this reality, these hard circumstances in our life. Unfortunately, what they do to us is they cause us to hurt the people that we're supposed to love. So Peter actually recognizes this danger for the church as cultural pressure increases. These people who are called to love each other, as the pressure increases, they're going to be tempted to turn on each other. And don't forget, the world is learning about Jesus by the way that we live in the midst of all of this. 
So protocol number one, lean into the church. So Peter expects that this group of imperfect people, this group here of imperfect people, we are going to mess up. We're going to get it wrong. And, and, and on top of that, what, what these churches are actually facing is they have people from different cultures who have been scattered to all of these territories around Turkey. You have people, refugees, like physical refugees, showing up on your doorstep at these churches. And these churches now have to figure out how to welcome these people well. And what happens is you get a combining of culture and a combining of different preferences and people asking for certain things that the, nobody's ever asked for and people expecting certain things. And in all of this... You're called to love each other. You know, the only thing that will actually give you the capacity to deal with the shortcomings of of your family as this cultural pressure increases, the only thing that actually accomplishes that is the love that you have for each other. So, so get this, oppressed communities, like this, these people that we're talking about, oppressed communities will either turn on each other or stand with one another. That's the options that are available. You will either turn on each other or stand with one another. And what you do right now, even before you enter into that increased pressure, enter into that oppression, whatever it might be, what you do right now is really important because it's going to determine the capacity that you have to love and forgive one another when pressure goes up. So this love, it's the only thing that, that God actually, like, that's what gave God the capacity to deal with our shortcomings. He loved us so much that he sent his only son, right? It's this setting aside of preference. It's this dying to self for the sake of other. Setting aside time, trying to understand each other, being transparent to be understood. It's notes written to each other. It's words spoken to each other. It's appreciation. It's service. It's having meals together with people you wouldn't normally have meals with. Finding ways to be there in times of need. The more we do this, the more it increases our capacity to forgive when we get hurt. Okay, verse 9, it says this. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is two different words together. The, The two words together mean love of stranger, love of the person you do not know. So Christians from differing cultures uh, coming together in the same city, and people who eat different food, listen to different worship music, potentially speak a different language, all of this stuff is happening. And the makeup of the church, these churches and these different places, it's changing rapidly, and they have to figure out how to deal with the change, which is really uncomfortable, and still love each other in the midst of it. And so protocol number two, joyfully open up your home. The temptation is the cultural reality for these churches changes. It's going to be grumbling and it's going to be frustration for them. They're going to be complaining about the ways that the people from these different cultures do things. And I tell you what, when you open up your home to somebody and you do so on a consistent basis, you know what? Your heart follows that path. When you open up a space at your dinner table for somebody and you do so on a consistent basis, your heart follows that path. And so he says, be hospitable. To one another without grumbling. Verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Protocol number three. Use your gifts 
to serve each other. God has distributed gifts, and he's distributed varying gifts, people with different skills, different abilities to speak, different talents, different capacities. And as people are hurting, and as uh, culture is being pressed in upon us, and you have people of different backgrounds coming together, it's tempted to be frustrated in the middle of all of this. Peter tells them to do the opposite, opposite of what their impulse will be, because their impulse will be to resist each other, to go and hide in their homes, to close themselves off from each other. And he's saying, no, in the midst of that, actually what you need to do is you need to serve each other. You need to use your words to encourage and teach. Use your skills to meet unmet expectations. Make yourselves available to your brothers and sisters to serve and help. Verse 11 says this, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Protocol number four, remember the reward. If the Spirit of God is in you, the Spirit of God always has the objective to bring glory to God. And you know what? God receives glory when the gifts that he gives people are stewarded well. The homes that he gives people are open for the sake of other people. He receives glory when we actually set aside the thing that maybe somebody else had done for us for the sake of forgiving them. He receives glory when we love each other well. Love means that we have hospitality. Love means that we serve one another. And when this is done, God is present amongst us. So we don't just do these things because they're the right thing to do. We don't just do these things because they're nice, but because literally every time you do these things, you invite the presence of God amongst you, and God gets a lot of glory. And you know, Peter, Peter can interpret all of this that he's saying. He can only uh, interpret this and even what they do in this hard circumstance. He, he's, he's writing all of this because of what he saw in Jesus. I walked with Jesus. He's saying, I walked with Jesus and you want to know how to keep his presence alive in the church? You do these things. You do these things for one another. So the Gentiles, the non-Christians, they're, they're going to do what non-Christians do. You know what? Don't judge them. They're outside the church. We're not called to judge those who are outside the church. They will continue doing their thing. But remember, they are watching and learning about Jesus from the way that we enact our protocols. So remember your protocols. Arm yourself. Take up your weapon in these situations. These protocols are the weapons that we wear in the midst of this cultural pressure. You know what? Gentiles, they may do what feels right, but our protocol is to do what God loves. So what? Number one, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. My blank is not my blank. My home is not my home. My money is not my money. My time is not my time. My gifts are not my gifts. Whatever it might be, the moment that you become a Christian, you are saying to Jesus, in effect, it all belongs to you, and I want to use it how you want to use it. This is the way that we arm ourselves. When we enter into the church then, when we come into this body of believers, we say to Jesus, like we're saying, hey, I want these things to now belong to you. I want these things to move your mission forward. I want these things to support a church. I want these things to love 
your people. My things, my stuff is not my stuff. So what number two? Remember your protocols. So when the world is enticing, there's three protocols. Walk away. Think clearly. Remember the reward. Remember that God, God hears the prayers of his people when they are engaged in holiness. When you're hurting in the church, there are four protocols. Remember, lean in. Open up your homes. Serve each other. And remember the reward. God gets a lot of glory when we do these things. Would you pray with me, please? Father, this morning as we just prepare our hearts to enter into a time of communion, would you draw us to each other? Lord, through Christ, who gave himself for us. The cross is the very thing which draws us together. It's the very thing that that shows us all that we are all equally sinners. But we are forgiven when we place our trust in you. Lord, may we take that attitude with us in the ways that we serve, the ways that we love, and the ways that we seek to be a part of your body. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're a community of faith bound together because God so loved us that he gave his only son. God's love is not only our example, but Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross is actually the means by which that we are able to share freely with each other, that we are able to forgive freely one another. It's the means by which we're able to love one another selflessly. And so we're going to celebrate communion this morning by remembering the love that binds us together, that enables us to forgive, that enables us to share our stuff, to share our space, to make room for other people to lean in and to serve. So in a moment, the ushers, they're going to pass plates out. And the plates are up here. They have bread and juice on them. And the bread, it represents to us Jesus' broken body. It It reminds us of what he went through for our sakes. The juice, it reminds us of Jesus's shed blood. These things are symbols to us. They are reminders to us of, uh, of exactly what Jesus went through, that we might have forgiveness and a restored relationship with God. If you're not a Jesus follower this morning, if you haven't placed your trust in Jesus, we ask that you would simply, as these plates pass, that you would simply let these plates pass you by. Um, this, uh, we believe that communion is a proclamation, a proclamation that our faith, our hope, our identity, everything that we are is in Jesus. But if you are a believer and you're coming from another church here this morning, we invite you to partake with us. In a moment, we're going we're gonna to take a moment of silence. And we're going to reflect. And, and there are two things that I really want you to reflect on. The first one is this. What are you tempted to hold on to? Maybe it's something in the the first two categories that we talked about of intoxication and sexual immorality. Maybe there's something in there that you're tempted to hold on to, that you want to keep for yourself, that you want to claim, that you're not ready to give up yet. Maybe, Maybe the thing that you're tempted to hold on to is your time. You're really, really concerned about your time. You don't want to give it up for anything. Maybe the thing that you're concerned about holding on to is your money. I don't know what those things are. But I'd ask you the question, please just be reflective. What are you tempted to hold on to? What am I tempted to hold on to? And then here's the second question. 
What did Jesus give up in order to forgive you? What did Jesus give up in order for, to forgive you? We're going to reflect on that now in this moment. So after, afterwards, we'll sing songs and we'll eat and drink the bread and juice together. So would you be silent with me? Lord Jesus, I don't know what each of us might be tempted to hold on to. Lord, I know that you are a discerner of hearts and you help us see those things. And my request is that you would help us see that with clarity. But Lord, even more, the thing that I hope that you would help us see with clarity is exactly what you were willing to give up for our sakes. Lord, that you came down, you took on flesh. The God of the universe became like human beings who were broken people. And he died that we might have life. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity you've given us to celebrate that here today. And I pray that you would just well up joy and gratefulness and thankfulness in our hearts for these realities. And Lord, would you... In showing us what it is that you gave up, Lord, would you create a deep affection in our heart for Jesus that we would be willing to give up whatever it is that he asks us to give up. Lord, because the world is watching. And we have a unique opportunity to bring a lot of glory to God in the process. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.